The History of College Football is a podcast dedicated to preserving the college football gridiron memories from years gone by. Please feel free to visit our website at historyofcollegefootball.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Jay Paterno, player, coach, writer, author, public speaker, and son of legendary coach Joe Paterno. You can follow him on Twitter at Jay Paterno. That's at J-A-Y-P-A-T-E-R-N-O. It is indeed an honor to have you on my podcast. How are you today? Doing great. Uh, another perfect day. Uh, you know, temperatures in the 70s, 80s here in Happy Valley. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Jay, I'd like to start with your playing career. You played for Penn State for your father's team from 1986 to 1990, your freshman season. You were on the 1986 Nittany Lion team that won the national championship. What was that like? Take us through that season. Well, it's one of those things about, you talk about being in the right place at the right time. You come in as a freshman, you redshirt, and uh, you're joining a team that went 11-1 and won the year before and lost the national championship to, to Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl. Um, but, I mean, it was just one of those things where some, there was such great leadership on that team. Um, a lot of life lessons I learned from not only being on the team from the coaches, but also some of the guys that were on that team, their commitment to each other. Uh, you really learn to understand the teams like that. You know, a lot of teams with a lot of talent, but the teams that really care about each other and love each other, the ones that they get it done. And at the end of that year, you know, uh, NBC was, we were lucky NBC set up a Fiesta Bowl matchup between Miami and Penn State at the end of the year by upping their payout moving the game to January 2nd which was really set really set the the course down the road for what could happen with the playoff um and it was just one of those games that uh you'll remember them for the rest of your life because we won the game in very dramatic fashion I think we were double digit underdogs um it's still to this day the most watched and highest rated college football game of all time even all these years later so it was just one of those things that it was, uh, it was like, uh, it was like traveling with the Beatles, so to speak. It was just that big. <laughs> That's great. I did not realize it was the highest rated game of all yeah. time. Yeah, I got a 25 rating. The next highest was USC Texas after the 05 season. That was a 21-7. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Great. What was it like to play for your father, the legendary coach Joe Paterno? Well, we kept it very, very professional, um, uh, which made it easier for everybody else. Um, but, you know, I'd get, you know, in practice, I'd have somebody really knock the crap out of me. And I, you know, there was no fatherly uh, sympathy there. <laughs> he'd, he'd laugh. And, you know, he, but 
you know, it was, um, he tried, we tried to keep it as though I was any other player. Um, and that really establishing that professionalism really kind of paid, uh, paid off as, um, I became a coach from later on. Yes. Now, sir, you, you left Penn state in, in 1990 after playing yeah. for Penn state, you coached at Virginia, Connecticut, James Madison before returning to coach at Penn state. Talk to me about your coaching career. Well, I think the great thing was that I left um, because it gave me a chance to kind of see how other people do things. When I first started out, I was a grad assistant at the University of Virginia, and George Welsh was the head coach. George is in the College Football Hall of Fame and really a great evaluator of talent, a very organized coach, um, and really got more out of his teams than, you know, he's the kind of guy that if, if his team, if he had a team that could win eight games, he'd win 10. He had a 10-win team, he'd win 11. You know, he just got more out of it than anybody. And he found players uh, that were under the radar and really did a great job of, of developing their talents and getting, you know, the techniques, details, fundamentals, uh, which is very similar to how things were at Penn State. Um, and then when I left there, I went to University of Connecticut for a year, coached wide receivers and tight ends, and had a couple all-conference players that year. And Again, that was another chance for me to go somewhere else, learn some more. And then I went to James Madison University where we had a really, really good team that year, got to the national quarterfinals, final eight, whatever it is, um, and coach quarterbacks there. And all those places really gave me things that I carried with me the rest of my, my time in coaching. Um, but I was a big note taker. I was always uh, comparing notes. I'd call my dad and say, hey, we're doing X, Y, and Z with certain things uh in in our game plan and he'd say oh that sounds good and we you know we, we compared notes a bunch so I was always talking to him but I mean it really was a great experience to leave oh, what a phenomenal response thank you sir yeah. your father's legacy Joe Paterno 409 victories the all-time winningest coach in FBS history the numbers are staggering five undefeated untied seasons two national championships 61 years at Penn State 46 years as the Penn State head coach, 37 bowl games, most ever, 24 bowl wins, again, most ever. I'd be honored if you would speak to your father's legacy. Well, I think, you know, if you stay in one place as long as he did, there's a reason. And I think the reason is very simply that uh, it was bigger than football. And, you know, one of the things he always, one of the biggest thrills he got is when guys that played for him would come back and they'd be talking about what they're doing professionally, whether it's in pro football or after pro football or whatever it is, business, teaching, whatever. Um, and those things were the things that mattered the most. And, and it really, I think his legacy was such that the program that he built, you know, a lot of people talk about our program centered on the student athletes. It's all about the players and a lot of it's lip service. At Penn State, it was absolutely that way. Um, you know, if there was a guy that went to the NFL and he was six credits short of graduating, Joe would hound him till they got the degree, even though, you know, they might make $40 million in the NFL. He's still, Hey, you're six credits. Don't be a quitter kind of thing. And, and, and so many things he did for guys when they left. Um, it just, I think it was just, it created a real family of guys that have a common bond and a family of people that learn great lessons for life that, that have carried them through so many things. And I hear that from guys who play for him all, all the time. And, uh, you know, I think that's the legacy he really was, was most concerned about is the impact he'd have on people. I look at 
Coach K when he retired from Duke, and I see the same kind of thing in the way those guys talk about all having played for him. And I, like I said, you can't stay in one place uh, as long as he did or as Coach K did with that if you're a phony. And he, it was genuine, it was real, and it was about the players. Well, incredible response. I have the utmost respect for your father, for you. Incredible man, incredible family. Thank you, sir. You're an author. Talk to us about your book, Hot Seat, A Year Inside College Football's Pressure Cooker. Well, over the years, I would tell people funny stories or stories about things happening on the recruiting trail. And I would say, you know, you ought, to, you ought to write these down because nobody would believe some of the things that actually go on in college football. And so about uh, five years ago, I had written a book about my dad called Paternal Legacy. Um, and I'm just looking, you know, and, and I started to kick around this idea of writing another book and friends of mine kept saying, write the one with all the stories about recruiting and, and what it's like and that kind of thing. So I sat down and start doing it. And then I realized, you know, if I start printing these stories with real people's names and all that kind of stuff, I could be in litigation for a while. Oh. So I decided to make it a novel. Um, so it's really reality based fiction. Um, and it starts out, I, I based it at Ohio State, not Penn State, because I wanted to branch out a little bit and not always be a guy writing about Penn State. And so what happens is the head coach at Ohio State loses a bowl game, and the president of the university said, you've got one year. Uh, you got to win or else. And it takes you through a year of the recruiting, the coaching drama, all the things that happen with kids getting in trouble and the politics on campus when a player gets in trouble and all the pressures that come in come with it when you're you know alums are telling you what they want you to do and it addressed a lot of things that the stories in it are, are true stories from here and other places um i just changed names changed schools and all those kind of things so that you know nobody can really identify them with any one person um or attaching to any school so I, I make it very clear that it is it, it's kind of reality-based fiction and it really and it also takes you into the relationship that the coach has with his wife and the pressure the wife undergoes knowing that these you know what kind of stress does that put on a marriage when all of a sudden the you know the husband is knows he's got to win or else and and the temptations to well if we just you know slip this recruit some money we'll get them and maybe we'll get away with it but i'll live to fight another year to get these guys um so i mean there's a lot of things in there that are very very real very true and it's i think it's a great read for anybody who wants to really get inside what it's like in college football and uh the response is great in fact i'm working on a sequel that should be out late october early november which then will kind of update what's going on in college football uh, with name, image, and likeness stuff, with transfer portal and all those kind of pressures that now are on coaches. So there's an update coming. Oh, phenomenal. I urge the viewing audience to, to buy this book. Talk to me about your life after Penn State. Well, I think, um, you know, there was obviously some drama as it relates to the end of my dad's career that, that wrongfully ended up um, you know, on with him getting blamed for things that, you know, when he actually did the right thing um, in reporting the incidents that were brought to him. And, and, you know, he was cleared by the prosecutors and everybody investigated and he followed university policy. So because of that, because of the media storm that ensued and because of some of the false narratives that ensued, um, it made some things difficult in terms of staying in coaching. And so, um, the coaching door pretty much closed after that, because even though I talked to some coaches about 
coming back, they said, look, there's kind of this thing hanging over you because of your last name. So uh, it became a negative. So I decided, decided to go some other routes. I'm on Penn State's board of trustees. Um, because of a lot of experience I've had, I do, I do speeches to industry groups on leadership and adversity and crisis management, things like that. Um, written, well, like I said, written two books, started a TV show called Nittany Game Week, which is on 20 weeks a year in, uh, I think, 10 major markets uh, in the Northeast. Um, so a lot of different things, uh, some business ventures, consulting on name, image, and likeness stuff. So I wake up every morning with a list of 10 threads that I could go down that day. And it's forced me to really, uh, you know, to focus on, you know, balance my time, budget my time and know what's time sensitive, what's not. And on top of all that, I got did some political stuff as well. You know, the surrogate speaker for the Obama campaign in 08 and 12. So a whole lot of different things going on. And, uh, and it's a lot of fun, but it's also a challenge to make sure that you're not letting one thing uh, get, you know, drop one thing that you should be following and getting done. Incredible. And Jay, I apologize. Where can the viewing audience find your TV show? I don't know this. Uh, NittanyGameWeek.com. It's all one word. Uh, N-I-T-T-A-N-Y-G-A-M-E-W-E-E-K.com. And we go August to January every week. Mm. Um, and then we'll start up again this year, August, the weekend of August 26th and go 20 straight weeks. And, uh, and we have great, we've had some great guests. You know, everybody from Gus Johnson, Fox to Chris Fowler from ESPN, to you name it. Um, Angie Everhart, the, the former swimsuit model, was on the week of the Ohio State game because she's a Ohio State fan, which uh, unfortunately Ohio State beat us. So, you know, she won that battle. But a lot of, it's, it's a lot of fun, a lot of, lot of uh, insights into, into the games. Fantastic. Uh, are you game for a few fun questions? Sure. Sure. Fantastic. If you could have been on the sidelines reporting for any one game in the history of college football, what game would it have been? Oh, my God. That's a great question. Um, if I got to go back knowing what I know now, yes, I would go to 1869 Rutgers and Princeton to the first <laughs> game ever to see just to see it. I mean, just to be there and see what that and just only if I got to go do it knowing what this would become. I think that would be really, really cool. I think um, maybe it would be my dad's first game would be one that I would be curious because, you know, knowing um, uh, or, you know, even even if you go to, you know, some of the great games, but, you know, Army and Notre Dame, the one year when the Four Horsemen, and I think they tied 0-0. Zero, zero. Yes, um, there's all kinds. There's a, there's a lot of like that. But I think if, if there was one Penn State game, I'd probably go back to the reporting. Um, it was in the 50s, Penn State played Syracuse, and Jim Brown was the running back at Syracuse in the NFL Hall of Fame, and Lenny Moore, who was the running back at Penn State, was in, and went to the NFL Hall of Fame, and they were on the same field the same day, and Penn State won the game. That would, that would have been something to see. <laughs> That's a great answer, and I would pay good money to see you as a sidelines reporter. That is a great answer. Who is your favorite player in college football history? Oh, geez, I have no idea. And I got to be careful because by name one, I'm sure there will be there will be a number of guys I coach that call me and go, hey, what about me? Um, but when I was a kid, I, when I was five years old, John Capaletti won the Heisman Trophy. So that was my first real memory of somebody bigger than life. Um, and when I was a kid, I would write them letters. Um, at five, I couldn't spell Capaletti, but I knew his number was 22. So I would 
I would write 22 on a piece of paper and I draw a picture and that kind of stuff. At the end of the year, he signed a picture for me that, um, uh, that I, I still have framed in my office, every office I've ever worked in, it's there. Um, there's, in fact, there's two things that have been in every office I've ever worked at. And that's one of them. The other one is a letter from Coach Brian in Alabama that I had, uh, in ninth grade, we sent a letter for National Library Week. And so you could, we could write to people. So I wrote to Coach Bryant. He sent me a great letter back, wow. uh, which I've had framed. Been, I guess it's been in my office everywhere I've ever worked. Great. What was the most memorable play for you in college football history? Um, I think it would have been, you know, when my freshman year, when Miami had fourth and goal on the 13-yard line and the national championship is in the balance and you know, Tessaverde went back and threw an interception, we won the game because being on the team and, and seeing the payoff and all the buildup for that game and the hype and, you know, how we weren't even supposed to, you know, Miami thought they were going to beat us by a ton. So that's probably uh you know it's kind of selfish because the Penn State play um but certainly that's one that really jumps out at me but you know I, you know Flutie's throw against Miami the Hail Mary um is one I was we I was watching the game with my dad and you know I played quarterback and I was a little undersized so Flutie was kind of a hero to all those guys that weren't six five sure and I remember saying right before the play dad you never know that year and i actually went, i was working in the press box then so i actually went down the media room didn't get a chance to meet him but got to go into his post-game press conference so i mean i just that that play is one of those ones that i think anybody who's alive that saw it knows who they were watching it with great response what was the greatest college football season in college football history um geez um you know, one of the, the one season that that really um, jumps out to me in, in Penn State. You know, obviously there's national championship years and undefeated season and that kind of thing. I think our 2005 season. You know, we came off a year we were four and seven and went really really good, and we went out and went 11 and one, won the Big Ten, won the Orange Bowl in triple overtime, um, beat Ohio State in in, in the game that really launched the whiteout that everybody knows about at Penn State. Um, to me, that was one of the greatest seasons probably I was involved in coaching-wise. Um, certainly as a player, the 86 season when we won the national championship was there. Um, and I think if you look at the 94 Penn State season, that offense was just so good. The top 14 players on that offense went to the NFL, 13 of them went to the NFL, and they averaged eight years per player career-wise. So those 14 guys amassed 112 years in the NFL, which is unheard of. I mean, that's the average was eight years. It's incredible. And that team averaged almost 50 points a game and sat out 12 full quarters because wow. they were just blowing everybody out. It was just one of those great, great, you know, great things you've ever seen. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague or friend of mine and, and was mentioning I, I've never seen a team that I thought could beat that team. And I didn't, you taught me something. I didn't know that 2005 game launched the whiteout. Is, is that what you said? Yeah, we had done a whiteout in 2004 uh, when we weren't very good. And we, we played Purdue and just barely lost. And then the next year we played Ohio State. And we came out of the gates, I think, 5-0. and Ohio State like, was top 10 in the country. And they came in. And it was the highest rated game of the, t of the season for ESPN. And the whiteout, just, it was just the noise and the, the spectacle. And then us winning that game 17-10. 
um, when you we knew we were on to something because the next year for the NBA Finals, the Miami Heat did a whiteout. Mm. And then two years later, we did the full stadium. And that was just the student section. Then two years later, we played Notre Dame and did the whole stadium whiteout. And that's become such a thing. You know, everybody associates the whiteout with Penn State now. And it really came from that. And, and uh, just a funny story behind that. Um, we played, we started out the season four now, I think it's five, four now. And then we played Minnesota who was undefeated and they were, I think number 16. And we beat them, really smacked them, played a great game that day. And so Sunday night, I'm driving back home, uh, from the office, it was close to midnight. Um, and I'm driving around the stadium and I see like nine or 10 tents outside the stadium and I'm looking and I, I stopped my car and I'm sitting, there was nobody behind me and I'm looking over, I'm going, what in God's name is going on at the stadium? And I went, oh, my God, they're camping out to be in the front row next Saturday. Wow. This was Sunday night. Wow. So Guido Delia, who's the guy that created the whiteout, he was, you know, did a lot of stuff with recruiting and brand management and everything in Penn State. I called myself before I went, I called him myself and I said, Guido, you're never going to believe this. There's kids out here camping out for Saturday. And he goes, oh, God. He goes, okay, we got, we got to turn this into something. And he said, we got to do it. We got to make it a story before risk management at Penn State finds out about it because they'll make a move because they'll say, oh, there's risk here. So he called media people that night. And by 10 o'clock the next morning, it was a story. And students, it became like the Oklahoma land grab where it went from eight tents to 100 and something tents in a matter of a day. And oh. people were going out to, you know, they were going to, you know, Target and places by trying to buy tents. And kid, I mean, it just, it turned into, it was like Woodstock. I mean, we would go up there and visit with the students Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and you could smell, they were smoking things they probably shouldn't have been. They were drinking <laughs> things they probably shouldn't have been. There was stuff going on in those tents you didn't even want to know. Um, but it turned into just this great event. And then to top it all off, Saturday night, we won the game in the whiteout. So it, it just really took on a life of its own from that. Oh, what an incredible story. Thank you, sir. What is the biggest upset in college football history? Mm, that's a good one. Um, Thank you. Being in the Big Ten where everybody kind of has a thing against Michigan, the Appalachian State win over Michigan, I think it was 06 or 07, yes, sir. was one of those ones that uh, I can remember that we finished our game and Michigan and Appalachian State were still playing. And every TV underneath the stadium fans were staying there to watch the end of it. And it was really something to see. Um, of course, the Penn State fans were rooting against Michigan. I said, oh, great. You know, you guys don't realize, you know, <laughs> that's just going to make them mad and make them tougher later on in the year. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but it, it was amazing how many people were gathered. And that was the first weekend the Big Ten Network uh, had, it, it was the first weekend of broadcasting games. And they got a gem that just kind of solidified that as a place to watch football. Uh, as a network, um, but I think that's probably one of the one of the ones that I think jumps out at, at me and everybody else. Great answer. What is the greatest team in college football history, in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, I'm going to go with probably 68, 69 Penn State. They went 22 and 0. Had an incredible defensive football team. Um, Mike Reed, defensive tackle, was was on the Sports Illustrated All Century Team in 1999. Ted Qualick was the tight end he was on the sports illustrated all century team um you know a number of all americans i mean they just they just that was a, just those two years back to back were really something pretty special but 
the minute I say that I'm got teammates of mine will be mad and I'm sure somebody else will say somebody at another school. But I, I, I think that, um, you know, some of the Miami teams, um, and, you know, the early 2000 team, that was really, really good um, when they won it all. Um, there's, there's been some great Ohio State teams, obviously, you know, Urban Myers, you know, national championship team in Ohio State, I think was really, really special. Um, and I know I'm going to forget a whole bunch of other ones. You know, L- what LSU did with Joe Burrow, I think, is really stands out as one of the best. But it's hard to really equate teams across eras because, uh, you know, what was great in 1950 versus what's great now, different situation, different. You know, those teams were traveling, some of them by train, you know, and, and, uh, and bus, whereas these teams are all in charter planes. So, you know, different, different era. But um, certainly, you know, those teams are ones that jump out at me in my mind mentally. Another phenomenal answer. And certainly, you know, the Alabama's had as good a run right now as anybody's had. Oh, no. sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, Jay Paterno. It was an honor to have you as a guest on my podcast. You're articulate, you're funny, you're knowledgeable, a phenomenal guest. You can follow. I, think I appreciate that. I appreciate you, sir. You can follow Jay Paterno on Twitter at Jay Paterno. That's at J A Y P A T E R N O. Thank you for listening to the history of college football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode.